Welcome to Broadway Radios, this week on Broadway for Sunday, February 27th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, will be released September 1st, 2022, and can now be pre-ordered on Amazon. Peter, those fights, they go on and on, and you've documented them. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. This uh, new book coming out on September 1st, 2022, can be pre-ordered at Amazon, and in fact, you are just looking at what we used to call the blue lines. That's right. Yeah, and boy, I haven't heard that term in so long. Wow, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's right. Uh, blues, indeed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, great fun looking it over um, and um, making little tweaks here and there and noticing the occasional additional preposition that shouldn't be in there and all that goes with that. But um, but I, I, it, it seems to be on track. Um, the question really is uh, what to use on the front cover as a picture. I think I'm going to use that famous picture of uh, Alphaba and uh, Glinda doing battle um, mm-hmm. with their, uh, <laughs> with their uh, brooms um but uh there's also a picture of hamilton with aaron burr and uh hamilton um not looking so uh, nicely at each other so maybe we'll use that but uh but it is all about uh the fact that we do have debates disputes and disagreements the way i structure it is <clears throat> i give four uh nominees so to speak and one winner just the way the tonys do most of the time so um you know like what would you go back and see in history um i would give four examples but then the one i would most like to see that type of thing who are the four faces you'd put in a musical theater mount rushmore though is one that has to be four no question about that there's no five there but um i guess there could have been if they did put ronald reagan up there as there was talk Mm. of doing once upon a time but uh the mountains just couldn't take it and a lot of people wouldn't be able to take it either but that's another story anyway (laughs) so so we'll see what happens, but uh, yeah, it it uh, it is something that will be out on September first. I thought I thought that the debates, disputes, and disagreements was going to be at the Broadway World message boards. 
<laughs> or any of the message boards. Uh, yeah, I, I, I should be so lucky that they even pick up on it, you know, so and, and talk about it. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens. That other voice that you hear is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hi. So, Michael, of course, you are our uh, resident opera expert, and the at the crossroads of musical theater and opera, we had some news this week. Yeah, I would say uh, the Metropolitan Opera announced its 2022-2023 season, which includes um, a commission, a new opera version of The Hours. Mm. Uh, and it's and it's billed as based on the book by Michael Cunningham and the Paramount Pictures film, which is interesting because in many cases, when you have operas and musicals and like that, they can't get the rights for the movie. Uh, so they have to go back mm -hmm. to this, the original yeah, source yeah. material. And sometimes that creates problems. Mm -hmm. But obviously, this was a package deal. And uh, it's music by someone I've never heard of. I'll be honest, Kevin Putz, P-U-T-S. Um, but libretto by Greg Pierce, whom we have heard of. And uh, the Met will be doing it in November and December of this this year. Uh, the uh, there are two. There will be two conductors. One is Kensho Watanabe, uh, but the premier conductor will be Yannick Nezé-Zagin, who is currently in the news because he has taken over on very short notice, uh, conducting the VR the, the excuse me conducting the Vienna Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall in place of Valery Gergiev, who has been banned. <laughs> from Carnegie Hall and I guess mm. the, the country yeah. Uh, yeah. because of the Ukraine situation, because he's a rabid supporter of Putin. So mm. um, so that's that's an interesting little thing. But um, the the main interest for many of our listeners uh, for the hours will be the cast, because uh, Clarissa Vaughn will be played by Renee Fleming and Laura Brown will be played by Kelly O'Hara. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, those two had previously appeared together at the Met in um, The Merry Widow. Uh, so I, I think they're buddies and they will be back together again. Uh, the rest of the cast, Virginia Woolf, uh, will be Joyce D. Donato. So I guess she's the one, uh, not Kelly, who may be wearing a false nose like Nicole Kidman did in the movie. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. No, go on. I'm sorry. Well, what I was going to say, uh, since uh, you just mentioned Putin, I'm seeing a night in the Ukraine this afternoon, mm. and uh, it's going to be very interesting to hear what the audience does when you hear the lyric. It looks like everything turned out all right in a night in the Ukraine. We'll see um, how the audience reacts with uh, laughter, nervous laughter, a moan. I don't know. But uh, this is being done by the J2 Spotlight Theater Company, which uh, just finished doing a class act and did it wonderfully. And I uh, will be doing The Baker's Wife uh, in a couple of weeks. And so I'm very enthusiastic about this company um, taking up the mantle of uh, getting these um, forgotten musicals back into the uh, public eye. So I'm looking forward to it, but I will be curious to see what the reaction will be. Uh, understandably so. Mm. Um, back to uh, the hours, the rest of the cast, uh, Leonard Wolf is Sean Panikar, 
Louis Lewis is William Burden. Richard is Kyle Kettleson. Dan Brown will be played by Brandon Seidel. Uh, and then the uh, director is Felon McDermott. Uh, set and costume design, Tom Pye. Lighting design, Bruno Poet. Projection designer, Finn Ross. Choreographer, Annie B. Parson. Uh, and uh, so needless to say, this sounds like a really interesting project. Oh, and it says uh, that the production, well, it was commit. The opera was commissioned by the Met and the Philadelphia Orchestra. And then it says in collaboration with Improbable. So I don't know what that means, but it mm. sounds like a really, really interesting project. Uh, and I just wanted you all to be aware of that, too. Mm -hmm. If you want to put it on your calendar, you uh, even if you wanted to, you can't buy tickets yet. I don't think I don't think they're on sale yet. Uh, actually, I didn't double check that. Uh, mm. But anyway, as I said, November and December of this year. Wow. Well, uh, I'm sure that as uh, we come up to it, we'll be talking about it more. And uh, let's see if we can uh, invite Mr. O'Hara back on one more time. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. I recommend bad enough more than you can chew to anyone. I recommend sticking your foot in your mouth at any time. So with us today, we have a very special guest. Elizabeth Stanley's joining us. Broadway fans will know Elizabeth from her many, many Broadway credits, uh, starting out in a revival of Company. She was in the original cast of Crybaby. She did Million Dollar Quartet on the town, and most recently, Jagged Little Pill on Broadway. So Elizabeth, thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Thank you for having me. So you have a really special concert coming up uh, for all of us Sondheim fans and who aren't Sondheim fans. Mm -hmm. Master Voices continues its 2021-22 season, celebrating its 80th anniversary on Thursday, March 10th at Carnegie Hall with a concert staging of the cult favorite musical, Anyone Can Whistle. So how did you get involved with this? I like that you call it a cult favorite. Um, <laughs> Uh, Ted Sperling, who's the conductor of Master Voices, reached out to me and uh, said, I, you know, I'd love you to play the part of Faye Apple. And mm. um, <laughs> I was so, so thrilled. I just felt very lucky that he would think of me. Did this uh, show speak to you? Did you know of it before? Had you heard of it? No, I mean, of course, I, I, I'd heard of the title and I knew so much of the music, but I, I had never... Uh, read the script. I didn't know what the story was. And, and now that I'm working on it, I kind of understand why, <laughs> you know, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a, it's an interesting one. It's a little tricky. Yes, it um, is. So I see mm -hmm. why it's not done a lot. Mm -hmm. You have such an amazing cast for this mm -hmm. upcoming performance, Vanessa oh God, Williams right? as Cora Hoover Hooper and Santino Fontana as Hapgood and yourself as Faye Apple and Douglas Sills. Who's what is his role? Shub. He's Shoot. sort of like, you know, the crony of Vanessa. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and Eddie Cooper and Michael Mulherin and Ted Sperling conducting. It's mm. it sounds so great. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic room of people. I was just pinching myself at the first read through. And of course, you know, Vanessa was just like lightly singing through her things a cappella, And it's that thing where you're like, oh, 
I love this voice. I've loved this voice for so long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I guess you didn't see it at Encores. I did not see it at Encores, um, which also had a phenomenal cast. So, yeah, they you know, did a it's... great job with it. One performance. So, you know, it, it, it's one and done. Uh-huh. Yeah, the stakes are high. (laughs) (laughs) Theater raising the stakes makes better drama, right? That's right. That's right. (laughs) All right. When you when you did company, in fact, did you have much interaction or any with Sondheim? Yeah, you know, he was around um, a lot, really. I mean, I guess not a lot, not every day or anything, but he came to see the show in Cincinnati and had a note session with us then, and um. And then was in the rehearsal room a couple times as we were rehearsing for Broadway. And he always was very respectful, you know, gave his notes usually through John Doyle, the director, um, but was very generous. He had us all over to his home, his townhome, um, the night after opening, which is something I'll, I'll never forget. It was just like so special. Um, sure. And he was, I did Merrily We Roll Along at, at Encores as well. And he was around a teeny bit for that too. Uh, so I feel, you know, really, really lucky that I was in his presence a couple of times. I got sure. to see Company in Cincinnati, and I think I just missed him. Uh, he wasn't at the performance I oh, was Oh, wow. Oh, how but, fun. But it was so great to see the show there. And I, I really thought, yeah, I think this is going to be just do really, really well on Broadway. Um, have you, um, now that you're currently uh, not in the show eight times a week, uh, have you had a chance to see the new one? And uh, if so, what is uh, your reaction to the fact that your role is now a man? <laughs> oh, my God. No, I haven't seen it. It's high on my list. I had a baby six months ago, so my social uh, life is not as um, yes, well yes. fun as it used to be. Um, but... No, I, it's been a show that I've been like highly anticipating since I heard it was happening. And, and I'm such a fan of so many people in the cast. And, and I love that it's being played by a guy. I mean, I think, you know, that was one of the things that was so inspiring and refreshing to me in working with Sondheim was that he, he seemed so game for his work being kind of twisted and turned and reinterpreted and, mm. um, was like excited by people's creative ideas. Um, you know, cause certainly our production of company was unconventional with the, the cast being the musicians. And, um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled that it's, you know, this is a whole new take on it. Hmm. Now growing up in Cedar Rapids, um, not a famous Sondheim city. Um, <laughs> did you know, who, did you know who he was then uh, growing up? When was your first uh, awareness of a man named Stephen Sondheim? No, I, I didn't. Um, you know, it's a little embarrassing. I don't think I really knew who he was. I mean, of course, I'd been singing his music, but not like aware of the the true kind of father of Broadway um, that he that he was or that he is um, until I went to Interlochen Arts Camp one summer oh. uh, when I was in high, in high school. And I think it was then that I kind of was like, oh. I guess I should know that this is really, he's, he's the person to know. You know? <laughs> so, uh, in uh, alumni, uh, that you worked with there or you camped with there? Have, have you seen them since? So many of them make their way oh to Broadway. Gosh. Yeah. Right. I mean, all the people that you start meeting, I think like when you're in high school, if you're a theater person, they just keep circling back into your life. I mean, like years later, it's, it's pretty awesome. Um, 
and all the time I meet people who are alumni of Interlochen and, and, you know, we know mutual people or we just missed each other, or, you know, such a special place. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, you alluded to it before, but, uh, what else did you do over your, uh, your COVID break? Oh gosh. Uh, well, you know, having a baby was a, the, the biggest sure. thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did. I did a handful of TV episodes, which was pretty fun and a nice way to keep busy and and uh, you know keep the bank account going. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we got away from the city for a little bit too, which was really nice. We spent some time in Maryland, and um, and then we spent some time in the mountains of Colorado, which was also really oh, great. Wow! Yeah. yeah, very very nice. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, uh, how long have you been in rehearsal for any Wick and Whistle? Just a couple days. Uh, we started last mid last week, and then I'm shooting a, a little recurring spot on Gossip Girl, and so I've, mm-hmm. I've been sort of going back and forth. So I was on set for Gossip Girl a couple times this last week while they had rehearsal, and then I was back with Anyone Can Whistle yesterday, and then today's our day off. So it doesn't feel like there's enough time. Like when I look at where the <laughs> where this the concert is on the calendar, I'm like, oh, that's so soon. Um, but. It will come together, I'm yeah, sure. But but you had a uh, uh, a Seth Rudesky concert last night with the uh, with the Anyone Could Whistle cast as well, didn't you? Yes, yes. Seth and James are amazing. You know, they're they're just like they were pulling up all of these hilarious clips that you know on everyone and uh, making us all laugh and. <laughs> um, you know, it was just, it was great to hear like the history again, like back to people knowing each other, like, you know, Seth and Vanessa have worked together and Seth's also worked with our choreographer, Joanne Hunter, and Seth has worked with Ted in the past and he's played for Santino and, um, and somehow we were talking about, um, you know, Scarlet Pimpernel and the high notes that Doug Sills can sing. And then I was sharing that that was the first Broadway show I ever saw. Um, <laughs> so it, it was all, it was a very fun night. Now, um, there are three recordings of Anyone Can Whistle, which is really amazing, considering the show ran nine performances. You know, that's one for every three performances. Prorated. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's ever been a show that can touch that. <laughs> My point is, are you the type of performer who avoids listening to recordings, or did you uh, delve in and do that uh, as preparation? Um. I tend to avoid recordings just because then it's like, sure. you know, you end up accidentally copying and never being as good as the per- the, other, the original, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. better to just kind of blaze your own trail. But um, I also think with Sondheim, it's so helpful to hear um, what, you know, how it actually goes. Because sometimes it's hard. Like this one in particular, the, the piano reduction just like doesn't quite do justice to what the orchestra is doing. So I really mm-hmm. wanted to hear what was happening musically and... Um, and of course, you know, as, as is often the case, the people that have made the recordings are pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I've been listening to the Bernadette recording a lot. And Uh originally I knew there won't be trumpets from a Don Upshot album that I had that I was in love with when I was. Oh, I love that album. Um, Isn't it great? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you, uh, see, not only are we going to get to hear you sing the beautiful title song, which by the way, um, have you heard Sondheim's own recording of it? Yes. Isn't that so sweet? Yeah. Yeah. I've been using it as a lullaby a lot. Uh. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm sure you know the whole history of There Won't Be Trumpets uh, about how it was out 
Uh, yes, Ted was saying that. I didn't realize that until we started working on it. But yeah, that like there's this epic monologue that Faye gives that we're only right. doing a portion of as I guess is also what they did a couple times and they've done it in concert. They cut the monologue down by quite a lot, but that uh, it was so spectacular. And of course, like or. Arthur Lawrence was also directing and writing. So, you know, um, mm. but they decided there wasn't really room or space. There didn't make sense to have the monologue and then the song. And so they cut the song, which feels shocking now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure you were does. talking about the uh, uh, cast recordings and how you sometimes would avoid them at the, at the beginning and, and how awesome it is to have cast recordings. And, and, and here you are. I bet you if we flash forward a few months to interlock and, there's going to be uh, some uh, some campers there playing Jagged Little Pill, which uh, won a Grammy Award. So, <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you think about going that whole round circle? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, definitely a pinch me moment. Um, it, it happens. I mean, sometimes it makes me feel old, but it's also kind of nice, you know. Um, it, they recorded our production of Company for PBS Great Performances. Yes, and yeah. that I have students mm-hmm. all the time when I'm teaching. Say, or or also in Jagged Little Pill, a lot of my castmates were significantly younger than me, and they would say, "Oh my gosh, we had to watch that video," and you know, in our college training. And I'm like, "Ah, <laughs> yes, I'm playing the mom." Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely the, like feels like a bucket list kind of thing to be on those recordings and, um, and, and theater is temporary, right? For the most part, yeah. um, it's mm-hmm. not recorded yeah. or, or mm. memorialized and, and, uh, if you don't see it, you miss it. So it, I'm so grateful that those things exist. Well, speaking of bucket list on the town is not revived that often. So I would say that's another really great opportunity that you, that you had and, and really ran with. Oh my God. Yeah. It's a, it's an experience I feel so grateful for that, uh, you know, to get to do that Bernstein score. And then we had the entire orchestra, which, you know, in this day and age, a lot of times they kind of trim things down. Um, so the fact that we had that and it was so kind of showcased and I was having all these flashbacks, you know, I was just watching the new West side story and, uh, hearing that orchestra and a lot of, um, our incredible Mm. ensemble, a lot of the amazing dancers from on the town are in that movie. And so I was just thinking about it, you know, as I was watching that, it was such a special experience. So what's coming up with you after March 10th on the concert? Uh, do you have anything you, you said you're doing some gossip girl? I'm doing some gossip girl. (laughs) Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm doing a handful of concerts this summer, kind of around the, um, a lot of them are in the works at the moment. So, I don't know if I can really officially. Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and you're still teaching, but yeah. And I do a little bit of teaching here and there. And, um, there's a, a summer program that I really love. It's called the performing arts project mm, Yeah. Um, that I've taught at a, a number of summers and, uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's really, a you know, it's really about fostering the next generation of young artists rather than like the next generation of shiny, flashy performers. Mm. Um, and that just feels more important than ever. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that and, uh, you know, and being a mom, I'm, I'm learning how to like juggle mm-hmm. all of it all together. So, uh, <laughs> I, f- I feel constantly like humbled by that just when I'm like, oh, I got this. And then it just takes me back to my knees again. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Broadway radio coming up on Thursday, March 10th at Carnegie hall is master voices, a production of anyone can whistle a one night only thing. So you have to go see it. 
Uh, I was over at the Carnegie Hall website, and there's terribly affordable tickets over there, as well as terribly expensive tickets as well. If you oh, want to yeah. support them, <laughs> but but if you want, if you have not seen any Wicked Whistle, and and you must see it, get over to Carnegie Hall and say hello to uh, Elizabeth Stanley for us. Thank yes. you so much for joining us. Indeed. Thank you for having me. You cry, you learn, you lose, you learn, you bleed, you learn, you scream, you Okay, Peter, in our review section, uh, Michael and Jan talked about Black No More last week. You've got to see this new new group production. So what did you think about it? Well, for a while, I didn't think I was going to respond to it because it did start out talking about the fact that um, there is that condition where it begins with a V. I never get it right. So I'm just going to say that. Can either one of you provide that word? Uh, something like Vitilano, vit, Vitigliano? Oh, Vitiligo. Thank you. I never get it right. Never. So anyway, um, it starts talking about that. And then suddenly for about five minutes, gets away from that issue totally. And I'm very surprised. I know Jan mentioned that as well. And I agree with her that suddenly um, there was a strange shift. So when this moves to Broadway, and I suspect it will, I do hope that there's some cutting in there so that we can keep our eye on the ball and talk about the fact that um, some blacks, uh, if given the choice, may indeed uh, choose to be white. And there is somebody who's able to do this in the show. And we do follow the fortunes and the misfortunes of uh, a gentleman who decides to become white um, and certainly is putting it over on a family um, that is very, very prejudiced, a Southern family, um, and makes no bones about being prejudiced. She uses all the terrible words that we don't hear anymore, thank the Lord. And um, and he has a real crisis there, uh, especially when his wife gets pregnant. What's going to happen when that baby emerges? Whoa, that's hot stuff. Meanwhile, the real point of the show, though, is the fact that um, some blacks are saying, no, I don't want this to happen. I will not make it happen because why should we do this? Aren't we proud of who we are? 
uh, and there's a lot of talk about the fact that people are moving out of Harlem and that blacks obviously are losing their identity when they lose their color. And it's, so I think that was very, very potent. And once it got its eye back on the ball, I thought it was really quite terrific. Um, some will say what happens is very melodramatic. Um, I suppose that's true, but it's also very believable as well. Uh, and um, it's pretty shocking what happens by the end of the show. Not illogical, but shocking. And um, you may not see it coming, but once it happens, you'll say, yeah, 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 I can see where that happened. Terrific cast. Amazing cast. Uh, Brandon Victor Dixon um, plays um, the uh, lead. Uh, Max Disher is his name. Um, Jennifer Damiano, Helen, who has a lot to say, um, is really quite wonderful as well. Tamika Lawrence uh, is the one who really brings up a lot of the uh, other points um, and uh, certainly um, has big issues with what her friend has decided to do. So, um, a quite, quite ambitious show. The music is magnificent, mm. magnificent. And I know Michael said he's looking forward to a cast album. So am I. So am I. Um, there's a good deal of rap in it, which is needless to say, um, not my favorite uh, form of um, expression. And, you know, rap lyrics go by awfully quickly. And, um, you know, when you have a popular recording, okay, you can listen to it over and over and over again and pick it up. But um, I, I wish that any rap done on Broadway would be a little slower. And maybe that's something that I just need because I'm certainly not of the generation that appreciates it. But nevertheless, um, maybe a little slower. But the show's long. I guess that would make it longer. <laughs> so um, maybe that's a bad idea. I don't know. But I was very glad to see Black No More. And if it moves to Broadway, yep, I'll be there again. Peter, I did. I'm sorry. I didn't quite understand. What is your issue with the vitiligo? That they started talking about it. And then for about five minutes, it's not an issue at all. Well, I, I um, maybe I'm not understanding, but it, that's just the uh, the explanation that they use. And and we should probably say from the beginning that this is apparently this is based on a novel, um, as Jan Simpson told us last week. Uh, that she, because she read the novel that is very satirical and not meant to be very realistic. And that's just given as the, uh, you know, you're not especially supposed to believe it, but that's the uh, explanation that this doctor who develops this method uh, gives for the way that, that the process works, that, the, that it mimics the effects of vitiligo. Uh, and so that's how it turns black skin to white um so i mean to, i just saw it as just a you know a, a a brief explanation that they give for how it works but you're not supposed to necessarily find that credible um so i think that's why they don't they don't focus on that afterwards because it's not how it happens but what happens okay i'll accept that okay all right <laughs> All right. So uh, Black No More has been uh, bandied about as well as a possible transfer. We got the news this week that Kimberly Akimbo was transferring to Broadway, as we uh, predicted uh, a few months, a few weeks, a few months back. I yes. Yeah, when it was. Uh, so already our, our 22-23 season is starting to um, be something worth looking forward to again. 
super excited. We'll uh, keep you apprised of that as it happens. Uh, another uh, possible play that's happening here is the Atlantic Theatre Company's production of English that Peter got to see over at the Linda Gross Theatre. Um, so, Peter, what did you think about English? I liked it quite a bit. And um, what's really startling about this play is that it deals with um, white supremacy in a very different way. And that's the skill of it. It never mentions white supremacy per se, but what it is, it is a play that takes place in um, Iran uh, some years back. And what it is, it's a classroom where Iranians are learning English. And the reason they're learning English is because, well, this is a world where you have to learn English. That's it. You know, you want to get ahead in the world, you're going to have to learn English. And uh, the various struggles that people have with it um, is, is, is considerable. But the real point of the play that comes out very much later is that one character says, you know, if Cyrus the Great had won his wars these people who are speaking English would be speaking our language, Farsi. And um, it's just the way that things turned out that we have to learn English. We have to toe that line. We're the ones who have to, who are now inconvenienced. And in learning English, we're losing parts of ourselves. Again, a theme that was in Black No More. Um, we're losing parts of ourselves because we have to think in English and we have to think in English terms. That, that's part and parcel of it as well. Uh, many of the examples used um, are concepts that are, are concepts that are specifically American, shall we say. Um, that's what we're really talking about more than we're talking about English meaning England. So that's, it's a, it's a, terrific terrific way of pointing out that um this is another problem with white supremacy so uh sanai tusi who wrote the play really did a spectacular job but the cast and uh, um there's a cast of five of the teacher and the four students they're all wonderful and the clever clever thing is that when they speak english they speak with severe accents not enough that you can't understand them. Not at all. No, but severe accents. And when they speak Farsi, they speak very naturally the way that these actors would speak in real life, the way they would speak English. Uh, but that represents Farsi in this play. So it's really a, a kind of fun. I know that's an odd word to use here, but it's kind of fun to hear them go from one quotation marks, language um, to another. And um, that's really quite wonderful as well. So um, I liked it a lot. Um, it's an hour 40, no intermission. I didn't need one. I didn't want one. I wanted them to keep going. They did. And I'm very glad they did. <laughs> so that is uh, English, the Atlantic Theater Company. That's playing through March 20th. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael and Peter got over to the Mint Theater Company to see the daughter-in-law. Uh, so, Michael, why don't you give us a start on The Daughter-in-Law? Yes, this is a play by D.H. Lawrence, who, uh, among other things, authored Lady Chatterley's Lover, 
which Amanda Wingfield identifies in The Glass Menagerie as that hideous book by that insane Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> um, so he kind of created a uh, sensation with that because of the sexual content. He also wrote Women in Love, which you may have heard of. Um, but this play is not uh, so sensational, sensationalistic in that way. Uh, it was written, I believe, in 1913 and, and set around that time in 1912, 1913. And um, this is one of the relatively few productions uh, that is a revival for the Mint Theater Company. They specialize in uh, in excavating uh, really, truly obscure plays from the past uh, and presenting them. And I, as I always say, it's amazing to me. They've done it so well and so often that almost always you come out of a mint show saying, um, you know, gee, I wonder why this is never revived and why mm-hmm. it's so obscure mm-hmm. rather than saying, well, I guess we know why that one mm-hmm. was stuck in a drawer for mm-hmm. 90 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so but this this play, uh, they did. F- they first did it in 2003, I believe, and it was a great success. So they're reviving it um, directed by Martin Platt with a wonderful cast, Amy Blackman, Saren Bowling, Seth Andrew Bridges. Tom Coiner, Katie Fanning, Polly Moore, Sandra Shipley, really, really fantastic, and Tina Stafford. Um, and it's about, it's set around 1912 uh, in the East Midlands section of England uh, uh, during the Great Unrest. And there's a lot that, that's happening in the background of this play that this, this character named Luther, this really kind of very, very rough <laughs> coal miner uh, young man um, has married a woman named Minnie who is somewhat above his station. And so that's the first um, potential area for conflict. But then uh, aside from that, it turns out that Luther is so immature and so feckless that he has gotten another woman pregnant very recently uh, because they, he had a little bit of a, I guess, a, a break uh, with his wife or just before he decided to marry her impulsively. And so uh, so that's going to be an issue because this other woman is pregnant and her mother uh, arrives to ask, you know, what Luther is going to do about this. Um, and then on top of all that, um, there's a minor strike pending. Uh, so I always, you know, maybe they could do this show on a double bill with Billy Elliot. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um but uh, so all that's going on. But the really interesting thing is that uh, to me, that's not primarily what the main conflict here is. And that is the fact that Luther's mother, uh, so beautifully played by Sandra Shipley, is a very smothering, controlling kind of woman. And uh, therefore, it seems that Luther has become quite a mama's boy. And I think that accounts also for his immaturity. So uh, it it doesn't look like his marriage to Minnie, who, by the way, is just brilliantly played by Mm. Amy Blackman. Mm -hmm. uh, It doesn't look like it's going to be successful at all. Uh, And then um, after lots of drama happens in the final scene, it seems like they, they have a sort of a rapprochement. And so I, I'm curious about that. Uh, and other people I've spoken to felt the same way. I, I don't know um, what to take away from that. If 
Lawrence f- wants us to be hopeful about their marriage after the really horrible things we've seen happen, uh, especially in terms of Luther's behavior, um, or if he wants us to uh, be a step ahead of the characters and kind of think that they're not going to make it, even if they have a moment of rapprochement. So I'd be interested to hear Peter's um, take on that. Uh, did I say this was is very well directed mm-hmm. by Martin Platt? Mm-hmm. And this is at... Um, which I guess is uh, now the permanent or semi-permanent home of the Mint ever since their previous theater got pulled out from under them. Uh, They are now in the uh, Manhattan Theater Club Stage 2 over on West 55th Street. Um, So that's where you need to go if you want to see it, and I do recommend that you see it. Well, um, yeah. um, (laughs) However, um, the the comment I just made about um, the accents being not difficult in Mm. English, my, the difficult here. Uh, One of my favorite critics, Mark Miller, (laughs) said, yes, (laughs) it's missing some things like subtitles. (laughs) Consider the first line of the script. Well, I should have thought the belly I brought the who before this. Yeah, it is true. Um, it takes a while for you to adjust. Um, don't get discouraged. Um, I, it's a miracle how when a, a, a play is delivered in much too soft tones that we eventually wind up hearing it because our ears adjust. Well, they do hear it to some degree. Mm. Um, <clears throat> yes, um, I, I thought it was terrible that they reconciled well that she was willing to reconcile at the end i mean we don't even know what he feels but um but it's terrible that she takes him back and i guess that's a comment on the fact that you know what else can women do in in 1912 yeah uh, but still i she was such a strong woman and especially during the latter half of the play she finds her freedom and she runs with it and um and he destroys literally and figuratively her um her independence uh, yes. during that period of time to the point to which I seriously, I mean this, I let out a yelp when he did something truly terrible. And you know what I mean, Michael? Yes. Um, and um, I, I, mean, I, I, I gasp very, very loudly to the point where people turned around because um, I, I know what it is to value something and to have something that you value destroyed. So that's terrible. And good Lord, can't he wash up before he sits down to eat dinner? <laughs> He, I mean, it's, it's, it's virtual blackface, um, what he has on him. Yeah. And I, I know that, um, this is part of the fact that, um, they want us to really feel, uh, how, how bad miners have it, um, going into these places and coming out, um, uh, black as pitch, but, um, and I know that's a comment and how they're so inured to, um, this, that they do sit down and eat without, um, going to the sink and washing up. But it's pretty disgusting in that. But this is a trivial thing to be talking about. The play's the thing. And I was with it until she took it back. Um, I don't want that to happen at all. Yeah. Um, people are, a lot of people who've seen it are talking about that, the ending specifically. And so uh, I really would be curious to hear uh, our listeners' response if you attend. <laughs> all right. So. Um... That is The Daughter-in-Law at the Mint Theatre Company. As Michael mentions, it's over at City Center Stage 2 on 55th Street, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, you also got over to Theatre for a New Audience to see The Merchant of Venice. So tell us how your foray into Brooklyn went. 
Well, you know, with all this talk about Shapoopy and the lyrics being changed <laughs> and all that, I mean, you know, should this play be done anymore? I mean, I, I, I have such issues with this play, which I find very interesting. It was the first Shakespeare that they had us read at the Catholic high school I attended. And, um, you know, because the Jew has to be converted into a Christian. So um, I think that's why the nuns like this one. But I don't. And um, I'm very surprised that this play is still being done. Um, now, it's done in modern dress, and that brings with it a problem. Well, um, does this mean that we're still that anti-Semitic? I wondered. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. There's that play, uh, Prayer for the Prince Republic. Um, and uh, it indicates that, yes, things are so bad. So um, I'll have to give them a pass on that. But there are issues that come up in the um, modern dress and the updating um, look of it that um, does turn out to be problematic. But um, let's um, continue. All right. So um, there's always been a lot of talk about whether Antonio um, loves Bassanio and how much does Bassanio love him back. And um, this is met head on head on um, here. We get the impression um, that if homosexuality were OK in Venice in that era, they would do it. Um, in fact, Bassanio seems more interested in Antonio than Antonio seems in Bassanio. So um, so uh, that's something to think about. Nerissa, who is uh, Porsche's uh, handmaiden. Well, here she's an executive assistant, uh, very efficient looking, um, not not uh, somebody who is seems uh, subservient, but in a way that the type of assistant who knows that she is valuable and um, indispensable even to um, her employer. So I thought that was terrific. However, there's a problem when Nerissa later says my foolish eyes um, looked upon, you know, this, an executive assistant of this caliber would not refer to herself as foolish in any way. She would take herself very seriously. So that was, um, um, a, a, a very um, problematic uh, take on this. So, all right. So we go to Belmont, where indeed uh, we have a situation where Portia has three caskets there. Her father wants her to marry correctly. And um, so she's going to have three suitors come in. And um, she's really nervous. It was, it was really good to see um, Isabel uh, Ariza, um, A-R-R-A-I-Z-A, um, gets so nervous when uh, the prince is um, ganding about and talking and um, making his decision because she doesn't want him at all. She's very discour uh, discouraged that he might win. So she's nervous about that. And I like the, the way that that was really um, shown. Um, of course, he doesn't win as we as um, we expect, but um uh, Lancelot Gobbo was in the play, um, but old Gobbo was not. Um, so we lose that famous line about um, the uh, wise child and the father. But um, Lancelot Gobbo and Bassanio um, have a scene together. And it's one of those situations where Bassanio laughs and Lancelot Gobbo laughs and Bassanio stops laughing. And at that very moment, uh, Lancelot Gobbo stops laughing. So um, we have that um, hoary joke in there um, where that happens. And um, uh I don't know if we need that, but nevertheless. All right. But the main event, Shylock. In fact, should this be called the Merchant of Venice? I mean, it's Shylock's play. I mean, this was all about. And um, 
And here he is, you know, asking for the pound of flesh uh, for the uh, intern for 3000 ducats. And it's really such a powerful scene when Shylock says, um, and of course I'm paraphrasing, I don't think you need me to tell you that, that this is not Shakespearean language. Um, look, you've been terrible to me. Why should I lend you the money? Uh, you spat on me. And, uh, and Antonio says, this is business. I, I might spit on you again. I mean, it's really, yeah, again, what is going on? Why is this play being done? All right. So anyway, um, the Prince of Morocco comes in to do his thing with the casket and he's directed to be very, very silly. And, um, so I, I don't much like that, that he's silly. Um, again, as I always bring up, uh, Dickinson in 1776 is not silly. He comes up with good arguments. You don't have to make the people that you don't want to succeed in plays be silly. Let them be who they um, can be. What's really interesting, here's another updating, is um, Graziano, um, uh, the uh, loudmouth, um, low-class friend uh, of Bassanio, um, does cocaine. I mean, usually we might see him drinking, but um, but um, cocaine, by the way, a line in the play really struck me about um, that never struck me before when somebody talks about the four corners of the earth, which has become an idiom. Why do we say corners of the earth when it's <laughs> a round globe? Well, anyway, you know, so um, now there's a very potent moment after uh, the Prince of Morocco, who is black. Um, loses and push has a line about let everybody who, who looks like him uh, fail. And um, that's tough stuff. Um, uh, again, that she would uh, feel that way in a modern dress production. And, but what's really something is Nerissa who is black slam shut the casket as if she's making a comment on that. So that was, um, that was pretty potent to see her react in that way. And again, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be a situation of non-traditional casting and she's just closing the, the box because, well, that's over and done with. Or was she making a comment? We don't know. We don't know. So, um, of course, you know, again, updating, you get a problem with the fact that people saying, gee, I wonder how Antonio ships are doing well in this age of telecommunications, you'd know. So that's one of these problems of updating. So, um, I do think that, um, that's, um, a bit of a problem as well. Well, um, Portia says to Bassanio, you know, I'd love to give you a hint so that, um, you get it. And, um, it's uh, it's good that Nerissa coughs at that moment to say, no, 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 you can't do that. That's not what your father wanted. You shouldn't do that. Of course, the issue of having a father choose a, a, a son-in-law for um, and a husband for his daughter is something that doesn't lend itself to updating either, does it? So <clears throat> what's really nice is there's, a, I, I guess, a butler on the scene. And when, <laughs> when Masanio and Portia um, kiss, he cries. You know, he's so moved by the fact that uh, she's getting married. And I think that was really uh, good. However, Portia does seem to jump to a homosexual conclusion when she hears that Antonio wrote love in his letter. Um, she does react in that way. I said, wait a minute, you know, uh, how well do I know this guy? You know, I, 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 I just met him once really. And I liked him and uh, I'm drawn to him, but wait a minute, what's this stuff about Antonio writing love? So that is something that is uh, implied here. So, um, so that's, uh, and, and in fact, we will see Bassanio kiss Antonio that will come up uh, pretty soon. Um, 
Um, Shylock, uh, again, John Douglas Thompson, how can you go wrong? You know, and there are times when he hesitates that you think he was Hamlet. And um, he's very, very, uh, of course, he will have his moment um, in the courtroom um, and um, he'll certainly uh, make hay of it there. So now one of the things I thought that was really a problem, we're in the courtroom. All right. And it looks like Shylock is going to get his way. Now, it's always seemed to me that Portia has always known all along that the loophole is, yeah, you can have the pound of flesh, but if you even there's a drop, of, there's nothing in the contract saying about blood. And if you spill any blood, well, then that's murder one. OK, so um, the thing is here, and I think this is a mistake. Um, he's just about to cut off the pound of flesh and um, Portia and Nerissa are feverishly looking through law books, looking for the loophole. No, I think she came to court knowing that in advance. I don't think it's a good idea for her to um, suddenly come up at the last minute, the last second, in fact, with the um, with the um, uh, loophole. So um, I think that's a, a big problem, too. Um, in fact, after um, Shylock gets, you should pardon the expression, screwed, um, Portia, when she says, are you content? Her voice breaks because even she is repulsed at what's happening. So I like that quite a bit. So um, so uh, when Antonio shows up at Portia's house, uh, she says, you are most welcome here. Yeah, there's a big pause, which indicates, you know, I wonder if I'm letting in my uh, husband's boyfriend into the house here. I wonder if I'm causing any problems. So um, so I have a lot of problems with it. And um, here's some shameless promotion. I have to admit that uh, this play has so flummoxed me that um, the people who wrote who have angered about Shapoopy is certainly going to be angry with me because I have adapted this and um, into the money lender of Venice, an 85 minute version where indeed Shylock at the last minute does believe the quality of mercy is not strained and changes his mind. And so all the stuff about um, him being screwed, about his turning, having to turn Christian, all that kind of business is gone. We're doing a workshop at a theater in Boca Raton in April. So we'll see how that plays out. And there's more to it than that. I mean, it's not just uh, that. It's all Shakespearean language with about mm, maybe seven lines thrown in that aren't Shakespearean. But um, Jessica does not run off of Lorenzo. There's no Lorenzo. There's only seven people in the cast. So we'll see how this plays out. But you can tell that I've given this um, play a lot of thought over the years. But anyway, if you go, um, you, you really should go for John Douglas Thompson, who is such a, one of our most magnificent actors and uh, certainly one who is no stranger to Shakespeare. His Othello was phenomenal. And he's as phenomenal as can be here in a play that really does subvert him and subvert his character so terribly often. Peter, I'm so fascinated. Uh, well, first of all, let me say, it sounds to me like the updating wouldn't work at all. So I'm totally with you there. But as far as the play itself not being done, I mean, aren't there many examples where we see old plays and musicals, uh, you know, that involve racism and anti-Semitism and homophobia and uh, people treating people very badly for those reasons. Uh, but, the, you know, I mean, isn't it valuable to see uh, that presented that things used to be that way? I mean, for example, would you you wouldn't say that we don't need to see Showboat anymore, would you? Uh, certainly not. Um, but 
Um, the updating here um, is. Oh, no, is, but I'm talking. No, I'm talking about if I thought you were saying that you didn't think no, the play I, should I, be I, done I, anymore. Well, even. I, I do have problems with uh, the fact that um, we're supposed to really laugh at the fact that uh, Shylock gets screwed. And oh, OK. okay. I hate that. Um, it, that and especially something that never shows up in my play is when they call him Jew. Tarry Jew, you know, it really is an epithet. Um, They might as well be saying, you should pardon the expression, the K word, um, because that's the way it's used. It's it. it, it, I think that's terrible. And so uh, if we have problems with your poopy, I think we must have problems with the Merchant of Venice by William Shakespeare. Okay. so So, yeah, (laughs) Uh, it is uh, playing through March 6th at the uh, Theater for a New Audience, which is uh, in the Polanski Shakespeare Center in Brooklyn. And I'll have a link to that. Lovely theater. Mm -hmm. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Not hard to get to from Manhattan either. A lot of subway lines go there. So uh, if if you're in the neighborhood, um, if you're in Manhattan, I should say, it's, it's not a real trek. So uh, to wrap up this morning, Michael, you got up to the 92nd Street Y to see a uh, screening and conversation with Andrew Garfield about his uh, recent movie, Tick, Tick, Boom. So tell us about this. Yeah, this was rescheduled. It was supposed to happen about a month earlier, but that got shifted because of COVID, because uh, that was the middle of a you know COVID outbreak. Uh, so I was so happy that it was rescheduled. This is the third time. I've seen Tick, Tick, Boom, and all three times on the big screen. Uh, and actually, one time before, I had seen it at the Paris Theater, and there was a Q&A afterwards with Andrew Garfield uh, and Robin de Jesus and uh, the, the leading lady f- from the film. Uh, but here again, it was Andrew uh, being interviewed by someone from the, the Y. And uh, this was really one of the most exciting <laughs> evenings I've been to in a long time because he has become a huge mm, star, a sure huge is. star. Sure in fact, uh, tonight uh, he is up for a SAG award uh, for this performance as Jonathan Larson in Tick, Tick, Boom. So you might want to uh, try to catch that. Uh, I, um, What they did was they uh, showed the movie first and then they had a brief pause and they closed the curtains and then um actually what what happened at that moment uh was that i thought i would go to the men's room and i went to there's there's a there's a men's room like sort of near the backstage area and i went through that door and and there was (laughs) andrew Mm -hmm. with everyone waiting to go on so i just kind of you know didn't bother them and i just did what i had to do uh but then i went back <laughs> i went back uh to my seat and uh the anticipation was building and by the way it was absolutely packed with a very very diverse audience but including lots and lots of young people uh and specifically lots and lots of young girls and young women uh so the curtain opened and andrew was sitting on stage um with the interviewer and there was a scream uh-huh. Like I have not heard in a really long time. And it was so thrilling to, you know, after after COVID to to have that kind of a response. I, I mean, I always 
um, have mixed responses to that kind of adulation, screaming girl, you know, Frank Sinatra at the mm-hmm. Paramount thing. But uh, but in this case, it just really did my heart good. And he was so gracious. He waited, you know, for them to stop screaming. And he stood up and he bowed and and he was so charming. And I thought um, also that, you know, I thought at that moment, almost none of these people would be here if he wasn't in this film, mm-hmm. you know, and, and would never have gone to see it if he wasn't mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. So that I think is one of the greatest things that can happen when someone like that, who is also famous, you know, for action movies uh, and uh, things of that sort um, can, you know, like Hugh Jackman <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. can, can do uh, a musical and bring in people uh, who, almost certainly would not have ventured there if they weren't involved. But then uh, once they do see it, they like it and it opens up a whole new world for them. I I mean, Mm -hmm. I think these people honestly enjoyed the movie and even during the screening uh, before uh, the Q and a at the end um, at the, at the very beginning when Andrew's name came on screen, there was screaming and, you know, but then it died down and then people just watched the Mm -hmm. movie very attentively. Mm -hmm. There were no cell phones that went off. There was Mm -hmm. no talking. It was a perfect audience. And it just really did my heart good uh, to see that kind of a thing happen. Uh, I, I admire him so much and he was so incredibly articulate. I don't know if you, you all have seen him on, TV, you know, TV talk shows and stuff. Uh, He's very, very smart and very articulate. He talked about mentorship. Um, He uh, he talked about Sondheim as a mentor Mm. uh, because, of course, Sondheim figures prominently in Tick, Tick, Boom. And then he talked about how then, you know, it's a cycle. And then how Jonathan Larson uh, was sort of a I'm not sure if he was a direct mentor to Lin-Manuel Miranda, but I know that Lin-Manuel certainly gives a lot of credit for his entire mm-hmm. career uh, to Jonathan Larson and, and rent in particular. And Lynn, as we've said before, he did such an incredibly brilliant job of directing mm, this movie. I mean, who would have thought that a little thought? three character <laughs> off Broadway musical about uh, a one character show that Jonathan Larson had written be- years before rent and, you know, mm. was trying to get done and, and nobody wanted to do it. And, who would have thought that that would, would, would be one of, one of the best movie musicals ever? Uh, so I, I can't if you have not seen this movie, please do see it. It's it's just incredible. And I I will um, I still haven't seen Andrew Garfield in that uh, Tammy Faye uh, and Jim Baker movie, uh, nor have I seen I haven't seen a lot of his stuff. I haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, but, you know, I know his versatility just from things I have seen, including Angels in America and the social network and tick, tick, boom. Uh, he He's he's really incredible. And he seems so sweet. He also talked movingly about his mother who died not long ago. Uh, and he seems like someone who really, really deserves every bit of success that he has. And uh it was a privilege, really, to be there for a screening of this. Great, I would have gone to see the movie again just to see the movie again. Mm. But the fact that he was there and and talking and talking so articulately and so brilliantly uh, was just the icing on the cake. <laughs> 
All right. So uh, that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our musical moment and trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including uh, I found the hours at the Metropolitan Opera website. And tickets are not on sale to the public, but they're on sale for patrons and subscribers. Uh, yes, so, they usually do it that way. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and a bunch of other things here in the show notes as well. If you want a transcript to this or any of the other Broadway Radio shows, you can email transcripts at broadwayradio.com and we and mention which episode you want, and we'll send you the transcript to Microsoft Word file to whichever episode you're looking for. So, uh, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? A character in an 80s musical estimated that a 60s musical would run at least 7,434 performances. Explain how that could be possible. Well, Musical Husbands, the musical that merrily we roll along Franklin Shepard and Charlie Kringus wrote in 1964, was said by producer Joe Josephson, Jason Alexander, by the way, to be funny girl, Fiddler and Dolly combined. Well, Funny Girl ran 1,348 performances, Fiddler 3,242, Dolly 2,844 for a total of 7,434 performances. Tony Janicki retained his first place crown, followed by Steve Bell, Paul Witte, Brigadude, Ingrid Gammerman, Joe Cross, and Josh Israel. This week's question you're riding in the passenger seat of a car and you notice a strange sound coming from the front of it. The driver says to you, I can't figure out what that sound is. You respond by giving a line that was heard in Wichita's one and only burlesque theater. What's the line? <laughs> I know that one. Do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I don't, but if you do, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, some people are going to hate me because I'm giving you two tearjerkers for our musical moments this week. The opening music was Elizabeth Stanley and Company from the cast album of the 2014 Broadway revival of On the Town And the song is Some Other Time. Uh, uh, On the Town is 90% of it, I would say, is a flat out musical comedy, Uh, just fun and and frolic, uh, you know, in the city uh, in the 40s. But it also takes place during wartime. And of course, three of the main characters are sailors, active duty sailors who were on leave in New York. And uh, there's lots that that happens with them and the women they meet uh, during the course of their 24 hour leave. Uh, But then at the towards the very end of the show, um, two of the sailors and two of their women uh, sit down and sing this song uh, called this beautiful song Mm, with music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Betty Compton and Adolph Green called Some Other Time. 
And it's about how they didn't have enough time to really get to know each other and love each other and, and, and spend time with each other, but we'll catch up some other time. But of course, the subtext being that it's very possible it's very likely that they will never see each other again, because uh, first of all, it's quite likely that that mm-hmm. uh, either or both of these men will be killed in the war, uh, and even if they're not, you know, uh, anything else could happen. So that is, a, I've always thought of it as a beautiful little tearjerker at the end of that hilarious musical comedy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth and that cast uh, did a gorgeous job with it as you will hear um in uh, in this excerpt from the cast album and our closing uh piece i thought we would use the song why uh andrew garfield's uh recording of it from the soundtrack well actually yes and no uh the soundtrack of tick tick boom uh this is a song uh that it's why without a question mark and it is Jonathan Larson's explanation for why he does what he does. And it's this incredibly sweet song uh, where he offers kind of, he, he begins by offering a reminiscence of how he and his boyhood friend, Michael, when they were kids, they did a show at the, at the Y. Uh, and that was the first time that he really uh, knew that that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to somehow be involved in musicals and musical theater and, 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 and that kind of art. Uh, and then he offers another reminiscence of when he and Michael were in high school uh, at White Plains High, and they were both in a production of West Side Story. And what an incredible experience that was. And at the end of both of these verses, he sings, uh, and I thought, hey, what a way to spend a day. And then um, there's a bridge uh, of, to the song, which is not in the, uh, in the film version of Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, so you have to go to the original cast album and hear Raul Esparza's recording of the song uh, to hear that bridge, which I, I'm, I'm sorry they cut it. I'm not sure why. I think maybe they just thought it, it was a little attenuated. Uh, the lyrics for the bridge are, with only so much time to spend, don't want to waste the time I'm given, have it all, play the game, some recommend. I'm afraid it just may be time to give in. Uh, and because the whole point of the show is that Jonathan feels his clock ticking and, and he's turning 30 and he doesn't feel like he's accomplished enough uh, for where he, where he is in his life. Uh, and it's a, it's a, just a really, really beautiful song. I, I noticed in comparing um, in watching the movie again uh, and listening to the album that it's two different takes of this song uh andrew has spoken about how uh he sang it live for the movie at the delacorte theater on a very cold evening and that was the first thing that was filmed for uh for the movie uh because that was the only time they could do it and the film version is uh is tremendously moving um uh but not smoothly sung it's all about emotion and actually andrew uh sort of is crying through part of it. Mm. Uh, whereas the, uh, uh, the take that's on the cast album is clearly another uh, take that was done in a studio, presumably, and it's much smoother. But um, you might 
enjoying comparing those two uh, when you get a chance. Uh, I, I love both of them. I, I kind of wish they hadn't cut the bridge, but um, if I ever get to, uh, maybe I'll get to ask that question someday of either Alex Lacamoire, who was the music director for the movie, or Lin-Manuel, or maybe even Andrew himself. Uh, but in the meantime, regardless, it's just a beautiful, beautiful performance of a, of a great uh, song that Jonathan Larson left us. All right. So that wraps it up for this week. On behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. What a way to spend a day. Hey, what a way to spend a day. I make a vow. Right here and now I'm gonna spend My time this way When I was 16 Michael and I Got parts in Westside At White Plains High Three o'clock Went to rehearse In the gym Mike played Doc, who did not sing. Fine with him. We sang, got a rocket in your pocket, and the Jets are gonna have their day tonight. Over and over and over till we got it right. When we emerged, wiped out by that play. Nine o'clock stars and moonlit the way. I thought, hey, what a way to spend a day. Hey, what a way to spend a day. I made a vow. I wonder now. I cut out to spend my time this way I'm 29 Michael and I Live on the west side of Soho NY 9am I write a lyric or two Mike sings his song now on Mad Avenue. I sing, come to your senses. Defenses are not the way to go. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over till I get. Diner calls I'm on my way I think, hey What a way to spend a day Hey, what a way to spend
right here and now I'm gonna spend my time this way I'm gonna spend my time this way